Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. I'm your host, Michael Fragan, here on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com, and around the world on Arut Sheva Radio, Israel National News slash Radio, sponsored by the S4 Group. S4 has an informative weekly newsletter on politics and policy. I urge you to subscribe. Go to S4GRP.com. Scroll down. You'll find it. S4 is a full-service lobbying, government relations, communications, and business development firm with offices around the country. And we are in the heat of the presidential race 2016. It's coming fast and furious now. Super Tuesday is upon us. The last debate before Super Tuesday is tonight. The Republican field is down to five, to just five. And we are really, really seeing the Trump versus the world and we had thought many times, many people had said on the show, I had said it, that we didn't think Trump would make it this far. But here he is in the driver's seat with a number of candidates, specifically Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio, nipping at his heels. And we have on the line Philip Rosen, a, a senior supporter and advisor to Senator Marco Rubio of Florida, as well as a leading member of the Republican Jewish Coalition, the head of the real estate practice at Wild Gotchel and Mangies and a prominent Jewish potentate. Phil, welcome to Spin Class. Thank you. Thanks so much, Michael. It's an honor to be with you. So let's let's talk brass tacks here. I am sure, let me just make the assumption that Marco Rubio and your campaign are not content with coming in second on a regular basis. How do we get out of how do they get out or you make it so that Marco Rubio is coming in first and Donald Trump is coming in second or third well there there are two parts of the equation as um, as you have seen um, the candidates have um, basically taken it easy on Donald Trump other than um, Jeb Bush fighting back when Donald attacks him and maybe one or two of the others fighting back a bit but there's been no um, affirmative effort um, to attack Donald Trump. And part of the reason for that was early on, I think that the candidates had the same idea that you did, that um, Mr. Trump was not a real candidate, that he's done this before, he's actually taken stabs at being in political office, and that at some point he would both he would pull away, or the voters would reject him. The fact that he has absolutely no concrete policies to effectuate his grand ideas is um, is a big part of the puzzle. Um, so I think that, uh, number one, I think um, Mr. Rubio will continue to question Mr. Trump's lack of policy. Um, and I think uh, the the this will not be as easy for him as it has been until now. Um, so you I also think that Marco is catching on with uh, all parts of um, Republican society. It's gotten him to a consistent second-place showing, which is what he was in Nevada. He had a little problem in New Hampshire, but uh, that's, uh, that's neither here nor there. Um, I think that he will push to uh, to move up the ladder to first place. The the other part of the equation is that um, you know Marco is now 
getting a consistent um, flow of support from the Bush uh, organization, the Bush donors, the Bush supporters, um, the Bush campaign, basically. And hopefully at some point, Jeb Bush will also come on board. I think that that will solidify Marco's position um, in a giant part of the Republican Party. Remember, every election until now, every election has had one, um, has, has narrowed down to one, what you call establishment or, you know, broad-based support, um, candidate with broad-based support, and then another candidate that's got a narrow support um, from the right wing, the ultra-right wing of the Republican Party. In this election, um, you've had the Trump factor, which is um, basically that right wing of the Republican Party aggregated with parts of the Republican Party that haven't been active or haven't been out there. It's the angry part of the Republican Party. So he's got those two levels of support. Cruz is still going after that, again, that thin right-wing, uh, ultra-right-wing support. Um, but the rest of the Republican Party, which is the part of the Republican Party that has determined the candidate for the past at least 10 elections, that part, hopefully, and I believe it is, um, is is garnering support for Marco Rubio and um, basically aggregating around him as the candidate. And so I, think I, that, I, uh, you know, again, one more thing is that I'm hopeful that John Kasich realizes that being in fourth or fifth or eighth or tenth place when you only have five candidates is not going to lead him to an election um, or to to favor. Also, to the extent that he stays in, he's pulling away support from Marco Rubio, um, and I think that that's uh, it's just not right. It's not uh, it's not what he should be doing at this stage of the game. So I understand the idea here that okay, we add up all the non-Trump votes together, and therefore we we get past Trump, but. Jeb Bush came out of the race after South Carolina, and Rubio essentially did no better in Nevada than he did in South Carolina. And, you know, if we take up the angry wing of the party, I would certainly put Ted Cruz in there to a significant degree. You take Ted Cruz and Donald Trump together, that's a pretty formidable number for the establishment lane to surmount. And the last point is, if this is an angry electorate, this angry electorate might not be so interested in all these endorsements now that Marco Rubio is collecting. Yeah, I, I think um, you've got some good points there. Let me let me deal with them one at a time. I think that um, that Chad Cruz's support has been consistently going down. I think that his high his height was Iowa, and I think that he is consistently riding down from there. Um, my guess is that that will continue. I think the fact that he's run a dirty campaign, um, that he had a communications director who took the fall for his campaign doing dirty tricks, um, you know, inventing um, 
inventing a picture of uh, President Obama with uh, Marco Rubio creating it out of uh, out of midair, um, putting on the line um, words that Marco Rubio never said, um, all sorts of things that uh, that were really dirty. And uh, the communications communications director took the fall. I actually think that Ted Cruz should have taken the fall. Um, but putting that aside, I think that um, you're right that, that Cruz and Trump is a is a um, is a large number in terms of what they're getting. Um, but I do I do believe that um, the establishment they call it establishment. I'm going to use, not use that word. I'm going to say that the uh, mainstream uh, portions of the Republican Party aggregated together, and that's pieces of Trump and pieces of Cruz as well, maybe small pieces, but pieces, I think that that will uh, win the day as it has in every election until now. So, Phil, you are a well-known figure in the New York real estate community. I imagine that you've either done business with Donald Trump or you have come across deals that where Donald Trump is involved, either directly or indirectly. Uh, what can you say about Donald Trump, uh, the businessman, the real estate guy, um, that's you know not being known or not out there uh, for or generally or widely known? Is it does his reputation on the campaign trail leave live up to his reputation in the New York State real estate community? He's a, he's a good, really good businessman. Um, fights very hard for every issue. Fights very hard for every deal. And um, I actually think that uh, that his daughter Ivanka is even better and, and uh, um, more polished as a businesswoman than he is. But you know he'll he'll argue with me on that. Um, I think that as far as New York real estate is concerned, you know he's done. He's not as active a developer as he used to be. Um, most of his deals in the last few years have been uh, naming opportunities where he uses the fame that uh, he created both in his real estate uh, deals but also in the, um, the uh, reality TV show um, to get contracts and put his name on contracts. So he has deals in Florida, he has deals overseas, South America, etc. And he's made a good amount of money from that, and he's, um, you know, that's the biggest part of his business right now, I think. Um, I'm not close to uh, his business, but uh, obviously I, I know him and know him well, and um, I think as a real estate person, um, when he does deals, he does them well. He's doing one hotel in Washington, D.C., but he's not doing anything actively, I don't think, in New York at this stage. His last deal in New York was the Trump Soho, which uh, I think had its ups and downs. But uh, you know, in my mind, he's a he's a good businessman, and um, that's where he should be. <laughs> so let's talk. Donald Trump surprised a lot of people with his comment about the United States remaining neutral on the Israel-Palestinian issue. And a lot of people were shocked by that. He, he seemed to have walked it back. He said, uh, subsequent to that, we're 100%, uh, you know, I'm 100% in Israel's corner. But, you know, 
does is is this a situation where he doesn't realize the consequences of his words or from your take is that he's a little bit lukewarm or not really in the Republican mainstream as far as support for Israel? I mean, what what do you is it just policy immaturity? I mean, what are we to make of these comments? Very unusual coming from a- any presidential candidate to talk about neutrality uh, and all that brings along on on the on Israel and the Palestinians or Israeli Israel and the Arabs. You know, um, for those of us that care deeply about Israel, the nuances are more than just nuances. And I think that um, what we um, look for and what we hear are very, very significant differences and and things that would strike fear in us, um, while I think outsiders who don't care as much and don't study the issue and for whom Israel doesn't mean as much, um, they're, you know, they're surprised by um, some of these um, differences. This is giant. I mean, I think if he really does believe in neutrality, that's a change of policy completely from where the Republican Party is and where Republican leadership is. Now, I don't believe that he really believes that. I just think that, you know, he, he says what comes into his mind, as we've heard uh, consistently over this campaign. I don't believe that he believes that, but if he does, it's, it's giant. And um, he did say right in front of me at the Republican Jewish Coalition that um, the concept of a united Jerusalem under Israel's control was something that needs to be on the table um, in the discussion room when the Palestinians and the Israelis get together. Um, that's unacceptable. It's unacceptable for any presidential candidate, but it's wholly unacceptable for a Republican candidate because our policy in the party has been a united Jerusalem for many years now, um, since, uh, since the Bush days or even before that. I think that... Uh, it's that's that's not acceptable policy for our candidate. That um, that reminds me of uh, the Democrats and what their policy policies are. And um, he needs to be educated. Number one. Number two is I think he needs to be reminded um, consistently that this is the the policy. And if it's not his policy, then we need to know it. Right. With uh, Phil Rosen, a senior partner at Wild Gotchel Manji, as well as a senior advisor to the Marco Rubio campaign. Uh, Phil, last question for you, a little bit of a lightning uh, question. What will be the first state that Marco Rubio will win? Oh, that's, that's a good question. I think he's going to win uh, a few states on Tuesday. Um, uh, I think he's got a bunch where he is um, close to the lead, and uh, when you take into account his um, uh, his momentum, or as we call it, Marco momentum, um, I think that uh, he will go over the um, over the top in a few states. I'm not going to guess which ones, but there are a few that uh, that he's very close, um, and I'm hopeful that he takes them all, but. I think he'll do very, very well on Tuesday. I think Marco Momentum is doing really, really well 
Um, the endorsements may not mean that much to some parts of, uh, of the Republican Party or some parts of the world, but the endorsements mean a ton to, uh, to many others, um, number one. Number two is Marco is the right candidate. And what, um, what, when, when you look at some of the polls, when you look at who can beat Hillary, and when that becomes the number one factor, and it should be the number one factor in everybody's thinking when they go into the polls, um, whether it's in the primary, the caucuses, or the election, um, you need, we need to be a candidate who has the policies of the Obama administration um, and who wants to continue those policies, wants to pressure Israel to accept a state that would not exist, um, who wants to pressure Israel to do whatever the United States wants them to do, whether it's safe and secure for the country or not, that's not acceptable policy for us. And Hillary Clinton has promised that she's going to continue these horrible policies of the Obama administration. It's not acceptable. And I say this, you know, knowing full well that there are parts of the Jewish community that support uh, Mrs. Clinton, it's absolutely not acceptable to have her as our president. And I think that we have to vote for the candidate who could beat her. And the candidate who could beat her, it's absolutely well known by all the pollsters and the advisors and the consultants and everybody else that Marco Rubio has the best chance of beating Hillary Clinton. Okay, Phil Rosen, senior advisor to the Marco Rubio for President's campaign, as well as a partner at the New York law firm of Weil Gottschall. And Mangis, thank you for joining us here at Spin Class. Hope to have you again uh, as the campaign progresses. Thank you so much, Michael. It's really a pleasure. And as I say, it's an honor to be with you on your show. And thank you. Good luck. Continue. Thank you. This is Spin Class, and we're sponsored by the S4 Group. And I want to welcome to the show, possibly for the very first time, my friend Noam Newsner. Noam is a principal at 30 Point Strategies based in Washington and Atlanta, Georgia. So he has a little bit of nexus to the SEC primary uh, coming up. He served as George W. Bush's principal economic and domestic policy speechwriter for two years and managed all communications for the OMB. And that's at the all-important agency of the Office of Management and Budget. Noam, welcome to SPIN class. Thank you, Michael. How are you? So we got possibly got the trail end of Phil Rosen talking about Marco Rubio and uh, making the pitch for Marco Rubio being the one who can beat Hillary. It's possible that most Republican primary voters, and I think you've seen this in your stint most recently advising uh, candidate Jeb Bush, former governor of Florida, that many Republican voters don't seem to care at this point who the best candidate to beat Hillary is. Would that be a fair statement? Uh, listen, I don't know what uh, all Republican thinker, uh, voters are, are thinking. I mean, one thing we do know is that... Uh, uh, love him or hate him, Trump has attracted a significant number of new voters to the Republican primary process. Um, he has energized part of the Republican-leaning electorate that, um, frankly, was not energized in the last um, two uh, or even three cycles. So what we, what we, so we can't be sure whether those voters are thinking, well, this guy can beat Hillary versus that guy can, cannot beat Hillary. Um, the polls on that, by the way, are completely 
um, they tell they give us all kinds of weird signals. If you run if you run Trump against uh, Sanders, Sanders tends to do better than Hillary versus uh, versus Trump. So um, it's not it's not a given that um, that Trump is either good or bad versus Hillary. It's it's uh, it's that's basically an unknown. So I guess what we learned from all this is that this is an establishment versus anti-establishment thing to a large degree. And I think that's possibly, and I'd like you to talk for a couple uh, seconds about the trajectory or the ultimate uh, failure of the Jeb Bush campaign and how, you know, whether it was forces specifically about the campaign or macro forces or macro headwinds that couldn't possibly be surmounted in this type of uh, electorate, in this type of year where the, as I think we've all identified, the angry voter seems to be predominating. Yeah, the, the, the conventional view of things is that, uh, is that you know, Trump represents the, the non-professional wing of the Republican Party. Um, that's to say people who don't think about politics all the time, uh, don't don't live and breathe it. Don't read the editorial page of the Wall Street Journal. Uh, don't you know? Don't necessarily think you know. Think a whole lot of, deeply about policy and you know issues like tax tax policy and how we're going to fix the, the the budget and how we're going to you know how we're going to re you know re uh, uh, reestablish American um, foreign policy as, as a positive in the world. Um, no, this is much more of the people you know the, the voters who are being drawn to Trump are people who feel politics personally. Uh, which is to say that they 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 generally don't really care about the details, but they do care about how it affects them and their day to day and the sense that they've been abandoned by the people who um, who live and breathe and work politics all the time. Um, it's frustrating for me personally because I I consider myself you know by definition an establishment guy, um, but I'm deeply sympathetic to those who. Who uh, who feel um, you know lost in this um, in our in our political environment? Um, listen, I don't know, I don't know exactly where Jeff struggled uh, and uh, failed to hit with um, with with key voters. I, it's disappointing on many levels. Rather than rather than reflect on that, I'd actually prefer just to focus on what is it going to take for the eventual Republican uh, candidate to connect, assuming that that is not Trump. Uh, what it will take to connect with um, with Trump's base, and I gotta say it's going to be tough. Um, some of those voters typically won't vote for a your classic establishment Republican, either because they're actually more Democratic leaning, uh, which is kind of an intriguing uh, in- environment, or because they're so turned off by what they view as uh, as the re- Republican uh, establishment's um, dismissal of their concerns. Um, you know, there's a lot of a lot of Trump voters. They 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 are relatively um, <clears throat> they're relatively uh, they don't care that Trump isn't ideologically with them. They don't even care necessarily that Trump has no governing principles when it comes to certain things. For example, you know, like foreign policy, it's impossible to know what Donald Trump thinks about America's place in the world because he says basically con- contradictory things all the time. See, what they care about is they feel like Trump listens to them, which is kind of intriguing, too, because I'm not sure if he does. Um, but, you know, that the problem is Republican, um, you know, the problem, Republican candidate in the, you know, in, the last, in this current cycle, in the last cycle, two cycles ago, they just weren't perceived to be listening to their, to their voters. And that's a problem. So 
I, I think these are fantastic points. And I, I guess the my big question would be how – take Marco Rubio, for example. He was the anti-establishment candidate when he ran for Senate in Florida. And mm-hmm. there have been – a huge anti-establishment backlash of the Freedom Caucus in Congress. And there has been, you know, especially in the makeup of the U.S. House, uh, significantly going to the right. How did the party become so disconnected from its base or the perception that the party is so disconnected from its base? I mean, you're sitting in Washington, D.C., you are a, you specialize in communications. You know, how did how did this happen? How And a lot of it is perception, Correct. Yeah, it's very hard for, for it's very hard to know for sure. Uh, it's very hard to uh, I, I'm I'm humble in this. I, I don't really know what the core issues were, but I would suspect that that they have uh, a great deal to do with the hollowing out of the American middle class, the American economy that exists for those who didn't go to college. Um, we'll start there because I think that's very important. When you, you, in the last um, two decades, you've seen a significant erosion in economic opportunity for, in particular, for white, uh, non-college-educated male, uh, people who, you know, would generally be called working class, but don't think of themselves in any way other than, hey, I just want a job, a steady job. I just want to be able to know that I can provide and, you know, move my life forward in some, you know, meaning, meaningful and humble way. The truth of the matter is, those people have gotten clobbered <clears throat> in the last two decades, and it's not necessarily by design, and it's not necessarily because of, of totally because of failed policy. But let's face it, America's economy is not serving those those folks, and that is probably at the root of the um, of the great uh, decline in <clears throat> white working class uh, men, uh, both as economic providers. And also, by the way, as voters, um, their their participation in the political process has just has fallen completely, um, and that's come out of the hide, particularly of um, uh, of the Republican Party. These are voters who were Reagan Democrats and who stayed with the Republican Party after Reagan, but who um, in the last two presidential elections really didn't show up and could you know in, and by themselves had they shown up could have made an appreciable impact on the race, um, you know, in defeating Obama at one, one stage or another. So I think economics has a significant part to do with it. The other part is, is a sense of loyalty and duty. I mean, let's face it, you know, the Republican Party on social issues, you know, it's, it's, um, it hasn't been terribly consistent. Uh, you've had a lot of bleed-through in the Republican uh, base here in Washington, D.C., and also in some of the other major power centers like New York and Los Angeles. You know, there are Republicans everywhere. And, um, and there's a sense that um, cultural and social issues, the Republican Party's leadership hasn't really been all that strong, that they talk out of, you know, they, they give speeches, and then they do something else when they, when they vote. Um, then, and, and, you know, there may be some truth to that, too. Um, I think as well there's a sense of abandonment um, of the... Of, of what I would call sort of a, a, a jovial uh, independence of mind. And that's it's something that Reagan was really good at. You know, if you listen to Reagan's radio broadcast in the 1970s, um, I know I'm going way back in time. Yeah, here, that's but, a little bit difficult If you can get your hands on them, they're really worth listening to because not only did Reagan express what I think was, did the, they have internet what, what, back then? Know, was the strong view that America was turning against its core values. 
Um, but he also affirmed a positive view of those values. He was able to express in clear terms what he thought was the greatness of American core values, the sort of uniqueness that we, that we have as a country. And, you know, there are very few people in the Republican Party who are making that case. And, the, and, and I, I would think that if somebody was able to make that case more strongly, um, you wouldn't have to be so politically incorrect as Trump has, you know, seems to embrace that role, you wouldn't have to do that to, um, to win the socially conservative, uh, particularly evangelical voters. Um, All right, Joe, so I'm being told that we're actually out of time for this. Uh, this is a great discussion uh, of the, I guess, the malaise of the Republican, many voters in the Republican Party and why it's disconnected. So maybe we'll pick it up in a future week. I'd love to have you back on uh, because this is an absolutely fascinating discussion and very, very relevant to what's going on. Uh, but I want to thank you, Noam Newsner from 30 Point Strategies based in Washington, Atlanta, and we look forward to having you in the future. Sure thing, Michael. Always good chatting with you. So this is Spin Class, and we're wrapping up another Thursday of Political Talk. Tuesday, the big Super Tuesday, March 1st primaries. We're not even going to go through them. We don't have time. Stay tuned for Jew in the City Speaks here on the Nachum Siegel Network. And thank you for joining us.